Hi everyone, it's Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 41 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. On today's show, the tables are turned a little bit as MSNBC news anchor Stephanie Rule sits down with Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkov at a very special live event at the 92nd Street Y here in New York. Stephanie reveals the origin story of the duo's longstanding friendship, Arya's start on Wall Street, and the state of the media industry. Arya also gets a few questions towards the end of the conversation, so stay tuned. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Arie. Thank you for asking me to be here with you. Thank, Thank you. you to your friends, your family, some special VIP guests, Mr. Cohn. Um, <laughs> Arie, first I want to talk about when you and I met, because I have been lucky enough to interview all sorts of people in business. And the first time we met, it was back when you were at UBS and you ran the investment banking division. We had this really interesting couple of minutes, but you know, you interview lots of bankers and they're all sort of interesting. <laughs> and in the commercial break, I leaned over and I said to you, what are you doing working at a bank? I think maybe you should start your own thing. And you said to me, I'm going to do that. Would you like to go out to dinner tomorrow and I'll tell you about it? And that's how we met. And then the next night came and I show up at Nobu and Arie had the entire menu on the table in front of him. And I thought, God, I think we're going to make really good friends. But take us back there. Take us back to 2012. You were the youngest guy running investment banking at any global bank. You were at the absolute top of your game and you walked away from it. Why? First, I mean, I have to return the favor. Stephanie, I'm so proud of what you've accomplished. And obviously, it's still very much ongoing. Stephanie came from the banking business and went to Bloomberg as a major shift in a career change. And she did it like she does everything with excellence and exhilaration and speed and excitement and just a different approach. And then obviously, MSNBC found her and tempted her to come over to MSNBC. And she really now has hit it in stride at precisely the right time when we'll talk about this. But, you know, politics and media, kind of the same thing these days, right? You find your audience and you monetize it. And Stephanie really is like the concierge of truth and opinions and just a genuine person that comes across with authenticity. And so I'm very proud of you and congratulations. Uh, I can't wait to see what you're going to continue to do. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I was very lucky at a major financial institution like UBS to allow me to try new things. When I first started my career... I remember thinking, okay, first decision, do I want to be a generalist or do I want to be a specialist? Coming out of school, I said, well, I don't really know anything. I don't have a vocation. I just graduated. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. So may as well start to develop a specialty. And that's where I went into research to basically say, if I can be the expert or try to be the expert in some industry, that would serve me well over a cumulative period of time. And I'll learn from people and companies and fundamentals. And so the first person that hired me said to me, you're going to work for me and support me. I said, well, what do you focus on? What's your specialty? And he says, media, telecom, technology, food and restaurants. But I want you to go backwards, even before you went to him. Traditionally, people who end up in investment banking, it's sort of this, you've got to see it to be it idea. People who end up specifically in iBanking come from five schools. They have very similar backgrounds. And they have people that they look up to that they say, well, he did it, so I know I can. 
that wasn't you. No. You literally came to New York with a plane ticket and a Yellow Pages. Right. So how did you even get there? I used to say when I was looking for a job in New York, I used to do everything but put resumes under windshield wipers. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully someone's going to pick it up and say, why don't you come on and in? And then you realize no one drove in New York? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were only getting a job as a cab driver? <laughs> exactly. Luckily, he didn't go with the windshield yeah, wipers. No, yeah. exactly. I felt, why not? I felt entrepreneurial. Like, if you're going to do something in life, it has to be hard if you're going to get there. And so I wanted to go to the center of the world in New York to do finance and on to do Wall Street. And I wanted to get paid for it while they taught me how to do it, which was like a two for nothing, right? They paid me and they taught me, which I thought was a deal. I was lucky that I broke in eventually and found people that would support me. And I remember Jamie Dimon was my first real boss at Smith Barney. He used to do this new employees lunch. He used to have everyone once a month gather around his like, conference room for lunch and he used to go around to everybody and say, you know, you're like your point, you went to these schools. And if you could have dinner with anyone that's living tonight, who would it be? I'm watching everyone go around there. There's like Ronald Reagan, Alan Greenspan, Warren Buffett. And they got to me and I was like, like, Paul Simon? That'd be fun. Like, <laughs> Jamie Dimon said, why do you want to do Paul Simon? I'm like, I like his songs and I'd love to talk to him about it all night long. And he's like, you're totally a different type of guy. <laughs> and I said, yeah, why not? I, said, I could read the other guys the books, you know? Wow. Okay, so now let's get back. So you're starting your career. You start to work for a banker who's focused on media, telecom, restaurants, and gaming? <laughs> Food, restaurants, and technology. Yeah. There you go. Where yeah. do you go from there? Well, I felt like while I had that specialty, learning companies, learning about people that would accrue more and more every year to the benefits of you know increased knowledge or understanding what's going to be around the corner, then I could take more risk around other things like products. So if you're at a big institution and you have many people around the world and you have something to offer, like the industry expertise, then uh, move around. And so I said, you know, from high yield, let's go to equity research and start covering stocks. Same industry. From stocks, let's go to banking and go private and start advising companies privately. I remember literally the first meeting I had as a banker, I knew that I was not going to be effective pitching business as a banker because I didn't have the product expertise. So I said, what's the thing about the companies that they don't really know that I really had a specialty in? Start with what you know, and it was about their stock price. I met with Brian Roberts at Comcast. Your I'm ultimate, familiar with him. The ultimate boss, right? And I said, um, okay, your stock is here. It should be much higher. I'm going to talk to you about how you get your stock price up, which is the metric you ultimately care about. Like everything else kind of feeds into that metric. And it's not going to be about a deal today. It's going to be about a strategic conversation. And we set up a series of conversations. We talked about the whole world. We talked about what's going to happen with banking, what's going to happen with geographies, capital markets, investor relations, and then potentially deals. And then ultimately, he hired us, along with Morgan Stanley, on buying the NBC transaction and representing Comcast. So it was a really nice way to do it in terms of starting with what you know and then over time bringing in the company and then taking risk on new products because you just start with what your specialty is. So I think you're being humble about sort of the magic in, in what you bring. And that's what I'd love for you to talk about. So research is information. And you and I talked about this recently. Mark Zuckerberg did a tour of all 50 states. And his takeaway was people don't trust information. They trust long-term relationships. So as far as research goes, you can get good research from a lot of places. But relationships or what we trust. So the banker that you became was the relationship guy. And there's a whole lot of relationship guys, i.e. salesmen. And then there are product guys, research guys. But speak to the fact that you are one of the few people, whether you were at UBS or really when you broke out to create Liontree, it was marrying the two. 
You are more than the, I can bring everyone to the table because I'm your relationship. You bring everyone to the table and you deliver the goods. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I remember the moment where I realized that that could be my thing. I was covering stocks. I was at my desk doing research and writing a report and looking at the fundamentals and all the numbers and not talking to anybody. And then I realized that I, I was invited that evening to go out with the salespeople. One of them is actually here today in front row, Leslie. And she wouldn't take me to see her clients. And I remember actually being in that drinks event and they were asking me about the companies and they enjoyed talking to me. Okay, that's exactly what I want you to talk about, right? Because no, <laughs> for a long time, I was the Leslie. Yeah. And so that salesperson is the connection, but you have the personal connection and the content, yeah. and that's your breakout moment. Thank you. Well, I think what makes LionTree special at the end of the day and what we're trying to really build is that we're supposed to know the companies and the things that move the fundamentals of that company and the industry thematics so deeply and so well, but realize at the end of the day, Every company is run by a man or a woman at the tip of the spear. Not with, enough women. Not enough women with motivations and dreams and objectives and anxieties and needs for advice. And if you can marry the understanding of that person and the psychology and the goals and the dreams with the fundamentals of the company and the thematic of the industry, then I think there's magic there. And then you can see the future. If I told you what was going to be on CNBC tomorrow at 3 p.m. Who cares? I'm on MSNBC. Yeah, well... You can make a lot of money. I would say irrelevant, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can make a lot of money if you know the future, right? There you so go. predicting the future is what we all try to do on Wall Street. Then what you're talking about really is emotional intelligence. And five years ago, seven years ago, we never talked about that. How much of a role today does emotional intelligence play in what you do? Huge, but I can't imagine it didn't play a role in the past either. I'm glad Mark Zuckerberg took a tour around the but country. We don't, but we, we didn't talk about it five years ago. And especially as you work on media deals and you look at companies that are run by families. Yeah, yeah. It's deeply personal. It's deeply personal. It's multi-generational. I mean, we're now just seeing for the first time families in media transfer control. The Rupert Murdoch situation with Fox, right? You know, we have many different family ownerships which create a whole different dynamic of understanding who kind of holds the keys. And so you have to know not just the shareholder base at large, but the core shareholder that is bolder and longer term and entrepreneurial. And I think one of the things that we benefited a lot from starting LionTree was that automatically you start thinking like an entrepreneur yourself. Like every single thing that you're thinking about, dreaming about, trying to figure out, trying to grapple with, your clients are entrepreneurial themselves. And so you're playing off each other. And there's a mutual respect there that I didn't appreciate when I left UBS. Do those clients have a different relationship with you now, now that you have real skin in the game? When you're at UBS, you're kind of a paycheck guy. Now, you've got essentially your name on the door. Yeah, they know that when they engage us or hire us or pay us a fee or, or do business together, that not only does it not get lost in the system of a bank, but that it means more to us today and also that we're going to probably reinvest that money for their benefit in the future. So I try to always say that LionTree mirrors the growth of the industry. So we're trying to build the firm to anticipate what is going to happen in the industry tomorrow and then put those capabilities in place. And so we're going to invest their capital for their benefit in the future. When you say getting paid a fee, I often think of your business. And I mean, you're a startup, essentially. You started LionTree six years ago. Yet somehow in everything that you do, you really play the long game. And one thing you're very generous about is your relationships. So there are lots of connections you make, deals you introduce 
And unlike other people who are just starting out, you actually don't look to get paid on everything you do. Why not? And has that paid off for you? Whether it pays off or not, I think it's just the right approach because lucky enough to- Does your CFO agree with that? <laughs> See if it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you have to play the long game. You gain an inherent advantage versus a public companies who are fundamentally playing the quarterly system or the yearly system. Secondly, the temperament changes. I don't want bankers at Lion Tree to be nervous about the food they're going to put on their plates with the families at the end of the year and therefore present some sort of advice that has anxiety around it to their clients. I want them to be steady. When I go on an airplane, I look to my left, I see the pilot. I don't want him thinking about any financial strain whatsoever. I want him to be overpaid and totally happy flying that plane. That's an advisor. I don't want the advisors to be nervous. So I think the more that we can overfund, think long-term, play over the long-term, and do the right thing by people, then I think um, we'll benefit from But at the same time, you don't want to inflate the connections. You can create what currency does that issues. Mean? That means if I say to you, hey, Stephanie, you know, why don't you meet my friend you know, Gary and and then you meet him and you go, why did Ari introduce me to this person? Like, I would never say that. <laughs> never. It's, it's a dream. It's an easy target now because, you know, you guys are friends. But literally, you'll say to me, why did Arya make that introduction? Like, next time he does something, I'm going to probably discount that. Or and there's No, a- I said that when you introduced me to Jared. Yeah. Oh, just kidding. I was kidding. I was <laughs> kidding. Yes. Okay. The, um, I was just drawing a comparison. Yeah. I was trying to shift to CNBC. Yes. But at the same time, if I connect you with somebody and you walk out of that meeting and you say, wow, that person that already just introduced me to is exactly what I was missing in my life, in my business life. And that person says, wow, Stephanie is exactly what I needed at that moment in time. Then you come out and say, well, Ari really understands me and he understands what I'm trying to do. And all of a sudden, it's not like, oh, by the way, can you give me the business after that? No. It takes care of itself because there's goodwill. And obviously, at the right time, we hope that we'll do a transaction around it. But I don't want to be transactional. I want to be building something. Well, there's been a whole lot of transactions. In the last six years, media, technology, it's almost unrecognizable. Yeah. I'm not going to say, did you predict this? But what's the biggest change you've seen since you began the firm? Well, for sure, we were In the industries you cover. The timing of starting Lion Tree and the timing of this wave of consolidation not just in media and technology, but the overall M&A environment has been obviously robust with the economy. But the M&A environment in TMT, telecom media and technology, has been outpacing the overall marketplace. It starts with the fact that the CEOs are not happy with their current business models. None of them. They all want to shift. And why is that? Because in the world of media, while there's the new, sexy, cool Silicon Valley companies, the big behemoth old school East Coast ones just want to get in the sexy game? Well, no, I think it's more about the shift from the model that goes right to the consumer. The consumer has unprecedented power over their own decision-making right now. It used to be we gathered around whatever was on cable, whatever was on the ecosystem provided to you, you watched, and it was on 8 o'clock p.m. You gathered around, advertising supported it, and that was it. Now it's all... Our kids don't even know what 8 o'clock p.m. on TV means. Correct, exactly. It's all on demand. And so the consumer... Getting the power is what's changed. And so who has those relationships more than anybody? The technology companies. They're above the globe. They're not in a marketplace like Philadelphia. They're not in New York City. You don't call Google for customer service. You use Google. You don't have to because they already know what's in your head. (laughs) It's true. So these global customers are served by these technology companies. And so what do the media companies do? One of the media companies executives told me the other day that they're worried that they're going to be just one part of the puzzle and not that sexy to anybody anymore. And they said, they used the analogy that when we used to sign up for a cable or Verizon service, 
they would say, hey, if you sign up, you're going to get a free toaster to incentivize you to sign up. And so now the media company is like, maybe we're the toaster now. <laughs> like, if we sign up to Amazon Prime, you get a media company. Damn. We're the toaster. So you things are getting spawned. Yeah, I think the media companies being independent will not last. Really? Correct. The technology companies obviously have all the data. So to this room, what does that even mean? We talk about the value of big data. What is that? Well, the data is kind of like the oil, right? Uh, effectively, you know, how do you refine the oil? How do you refine the data? It's really a starting point for how you then provide services and applications. And now the data is not just by putting it into the computer or your mobile device. It's voice. So now like 25% or 22% of all searches are voice activated. And like the best modifier of that is near me. So you're looking for like, where's the closest 90 seconds to Y? Near me, right? And so where's the closest coffee shop? Near me. So the data is being done now by, without even you recognizing it, by just talking in your home to an Alexa or a Google Pod or an Apple Pod. The voice activation is accumulating the data and the location that you're in is also populating the decisions. And so it's what you do with the data, I think, that matters. But obviously it's a risky and slippery slope because bad things could happen too. From your perspective, what's the most valuable data? Let's give a comparison. We look at Facebook versus Amazon. And you could say, like, Facebook is one of the most valuable companies in the world because of all that they know. But Facebook knows what I claim to like. And I claim to like luxury vacations and Louis Vuitton handbags. But Amazon knows I buy underpants and tube socks. So in terms of... So which one's right? But that's it. Which one is right Right. in terms of where's Um, the most value? I think the data... I mean, there's a great professor at MIT and Jeremy uh, England, he talks about the limitations of data based on the perspectives of who populates the data or even the companies that are created by human beings. The best data is the artificial intelligence. The best data is the AI, the data that learns itself, that doesn't rely on your input or your actions. And that's where we're headed, right? The AI system is really where you don't need people's data. It will be learned for you and you have to figure out whether you're controlling it or not. But that's the data that is probably the most fleeting right now. Given how much you know about all of this, which is more than what we know, are you scared? I am eyes wide open. So I think that we went into a period of time in the last 10 years where we viewed the technology companies as altruistic and pure and angelic. We don't think that anymore. We don't think that anymore. They've shifted to now maybe being viewed as slightly evil. But it's not like we do anything about it. We could say, I'm totally worried about my privacy. I'm worried about what Facebook can see. But we're still looking up all our ex-boyfriends on Facebook every night. (laughs) Well, yeah, maybe not me. But thanks for sharing that story. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, wait till your Google searches become public. Wait, mistake, yeah. I think we've kind of created this dynamic of a celebrity CEO out there, especially from the technology companies. And I think that's wrong. Knowing what Jeff Bezos, as smart as he is, does when he wakes up in the morning and thinking that that is like gospel, I think is not a healthy dynamic. Going back to understanding the company fundamentals today and into the future and the motivations of the individuals that are guiding shareholder value is the most important thing. So we can't get away from the fundamental conversation to the emotional hope conversation or the emotional angst conversation. I think we have to get back to effectively predicting you know, where these companies are going. And most of them are doing very well. But Arya, should we ever think that any company is altruistic and just trying to do a good thing? Corporate America has to think about who their stakeholders are. 
and their stakeholders are their customers and their shareholders, not the well-being of humankind, most often not the happiness or satisfaction of their lowest paid labor force. So are we misguided in how we even look at these companies? That's a good question. They're all good questions, by the way. So yes, I believe that their primary purpose of a company is to be performing for its shareholders and its constituents and its customers. That being said, there are biases in the system that have to get corrected. You're frowning at me now, but now 20% of corporate boards are women. 4% of corporate CEOs are women. 20% of Congress are women. That seems to be a bias. 51% of people who graduate from college are women. Correct. So there's an imbalance there. 98% of venture capital money go to male-founded companies, not female. That is an arbitrage opportunity. But here's the thing, and I don't mean to be sassy. We've been having this conversation for years and years. And all day today. And it's really not changing. I think it is changing. The incremental board, the board member that goes to a board this year, last 12 months, is 50% male and female, not the 20%. So the averages are going to move up over time. Some states like California are now mandating it. I think that it is going to change. But my overall point is that's only a temporary fix. Hopefully we get back to parity or just some normalcy, right? But ultimately, you have to get back to the shareholder equation again and creating value. And I think that, to us, is how we look at companies, assess value, look at deals. The impact part of it is important, but not necessarily core to corporate finance. Then for you, as you look at your business in the next five years, over the last six years, basically every year it was, whether you're opening New York, San Francisco, London, Paris, merchant banking, you've opened all different verticals, you've acquired businesses... Where do you see the next five years going? Well, first, the more choppy the markets are, and we're all predicting that what it's going to What does that mean, choppy the market? Well, so we're nine and a half years into a bull market cycle. Now things seem a little bit more cloudy. Interest rates are going up. There's obviously tariff issues with China. The markets are doing a flight to quality, getting out of the volatile stocks. So there's a little more volatility in the markets overall. You know, debt issuance has been softening recently. So what does that mean? I'm not calling an end to it. Everyone's like hoping to predict the downturn. What I'm saying is in that choppiness, in that volatile state, the role of an advisor, I think, is very, very important. Someone told me who's a professor of behavioral economics that I asked him what the definition of a great advisor is. And he says, someone that has your best interest in mind that doesn't care about your feelings. And so like you really have to think clearly. You have to be emotionally intelligent, but you have to provide advice that is pure And I think advice is held at a premium when the markets are more choppy. Because when things are going great, people aren't asking for advice. So I think for Liontree, we want to play globally. We want to have relationships around the world in this industry. We're very focused on these industries, media, technology, consumer industries. But we want to accentuate our advisory business. And when we're invited to, put some skin in the game, put our money where our mouth is, invest alongside of those deals, and then hopefully create value for our partners. When you see these massive transactions, most recently Disney Fox, AT&T, Time Warner, what should they tell us? It's really that being a standalone player without scale is a thing of the past. In order to compete with the technology platforms, which dominate the market value and the dominance of the capital markets around the globe, in order to compete for the consumer, you have to be part of the bigger platforms or have a high growth strategy to disrupt it. These stories and these deals are telling us that scale is of paramount importance. A, and B, not all strategies are the same. All the deals you're looking at so far that we're talking about are different approaches to create value. There's no linear approach anymore. So people are trying different things. 
Technology companies, specifically social media platforms of years, have said, we're not media companies, we're not media companies, even though, for me, every time NBC loses an advertising dollar, we're not losing it to ABC or CBS. We're losing it to Facebook or Twitter or Snap. And one of the reasons they've been so successful is because they haven't really been regulated. There was talk that regulation would come a few months ago. We thought it would come on a federal level. It didn't. But now in California, we're seeing some of that. How much do you think regulation is going to play a role in what you do advising around it in the next few years? I think it's going to play a big role. And I do think that it's concentration. So let's say if you're concentrated in search or social, that has regulatory implications. And it's also jurisdictional. It's geographic. If you're Apple and you're trying to buy Shazam, which just happened, it took a long time in the EU to get passed. The question is, so the European Union may be the governing body that regulates the tech industry, not the U.S., or maybe the U.S. So I think the regulation of the tech industry is definitely here. It won't be like Microsoft or AT&T breaking up, but I think it'll be very different. What it is doing, though, is causing a lot of companies to diversify. So that's where Comcast buys Sky to get away from the U.S. market into a European marketplace. So I think geographic diversification and jurisdictional regulatory diversification will be really, really important trends now playing on a global scale. I want to be careful in how I phrase this because I I don't want to be insulting, but um, are you worried about poor regulation. When you look at some of these social media companies, you know, even I think back to when Mark Zuckerberg was testifying, many of them didn't realize the gargantuan beasts that they were about to create. And now we have those behemoth companies. They're trying to find their way. And now we're looking at regulation. Can we honestly say, and and we think back to nine years ago when the financial crisis hit and it became time to regulate Wall Street. We saw a lot of cumbersome, flawed, clunky, regulation. Are you concerned that's what we're going to see in tech? Because even based on Mark Zuckerberg testifying, when you saw those members of Congress asking about how the Facebook works, (laughs) you can't imagine that you're going to go, damn, we're going to pinpoint some smart regulation here. Yeah, of course. When the power goes back to the state, so to speak, you do worry about not only poor regulation, but the unforeseen consequences of that regulation. Not only that, but does it artificially empower the incumbents, because there's a cost to regulation. So if you regulate Facebook, they're going to spend a lot of money making sure that they're adhering to that regulatory policy. A la J.P. Morgan regulatory capture off of Dodd-Frank and Volcker rule, and you saw small and mid-sized banks get strangled. Correct, but then you saw boutiques come up, right? There's always some entrepreneurial offshoot, I think, to the regulation, which will be exciting. Your media is sort of the canary in the coal mine in terms of the disruption because of technology. Media has been very heavily disrupted Every other industry is going to get disrupted as well. You know, the auto industry has been disrupted. Healthcare is being disrupted. Financial services will be disrupted. So there's going to be a technology-inspired regulatory or not focus on new ways of doing traditional industries. How much do you see, put into perspective for us, the proliferation of technology, what it has done to media? If you even think back five years ago, there was very few massive media platforms and the control they had... You couldn't even quantify. Now, look at Netflix today, right? Netflix shares just in the last three hours through the roof. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, half the people in the room didn't know what Netflix was. Yeah. Well, I think it's created a global channel, a global standard, right? There's never been a global 
telecom company, right? But there is a global media company now with Netflix. I mean, part of the growth in Netflix's numbers is the fact that India and Asia overall is on fire. I think that that allows for a global audience, not a regional one. And then they have the capital to reinvest it in the content and outspend their rivals. I mean, they're spending, you know, four or five billion dollars a year. Maybe it's coming down a little bit now at Netflix on a whole different level of programming. I mean, when you look at the the AMC network, you think about Breaking Bad or Walking Dead. When we looked at you know a few channels in the past, we thought about one show. Netflix has a diversified content library. You can't even name you know, all the shows that they put on because it's so diverse now. And they're not necessarily relying on one show anymore to drive their audience. So now that there's content across the globe, do you see a need for more distribution global networks? Yeah, I think now that we have global tech networks, I think you'll, you'll ultimately see more global distribution networks of other kinds like telco, like cable, like other software providers. Global carriers is part of the scale of things we're talking about. There will be another opportunity to play into the local market. What's the local Netflix in New York? Is there an opportunity for a streaming service just for a region? Yes, I think there will be eventually. But right now we're going the other way. We're going global, and I think we're just at the beginning of that. What opportunity did you miss? What didn't you see coming? We miss things all the time. I mean, I think software... And payments, that part of tech has been uh, really on fire and we're behind that. What does that mean? It's companies like in the fintech space, financial technology space. It's like the new ways of doing credit card processing, not using like first data, but let's say Square and doing things like that. And so we're trying to catch up in those areas. But we also are looking at areas like gaming, which is a hot area right now. I mean, especially for millennials, there's esports that we're involved with. The worst. You know what it is? Yes. Yeah, your kids use it. Fortnite? Yeah, I know what <laughs> exactly, it is. Exactly. <laughs> There's a demographic shift that we're really trying to play into. I mean, this next year, 2019, millennials will surpass baby boomers in the U.S., over 70 million people for the first time. And millennials are like 30% of the world's population now, 18 to 34. So the way that they consume, the way that they're using media, the way they're using their technology and applications, we're trying to get in front of. So 10 years from now, what do you think will be the same? We talk about like change, change. What's going to be the same? This. Relationships. I think so. Artificial intelligence, technology, maybe supplemental to human interaction, but it won't be able to replace it. But are they? Because our big fear in technology and our kids is that they have fewer and fewer direct relationships. Yeah, but think about like video conferencing. Video conferencing came in, you know, technology of the past, and everyone thought that would replace the need for in-person meeting. It doesn't it just changes the dynamic. So you can do a video conference, but it doesn't replace the interaction of a face-to-face meeting. So I think the technology will be kind of additive and supplementing what you do today, but I don't think it will replace the human level of interaction, even social media. You don't have any of these draconian fears of what social media can do to us. I'm, like I said, concerned, focused, but I also believe in some core principles. The other things that probably don't change are the need for cash flow. Right, Business models can be the newest concept in the world and the high-flying stock, but ultimately has to be tethered to financial metrics. And I'm a big believer in cash flow investing, not just momentum investing. So I think that will never change. But isn't that the biggest frustration for the traditional media companies that you cover, whose multiples are a fraction of what the new, cool, sexy companies with yeah. minimal cash flow? Yeah, and I think that was the other thing that, won't change, but be in motion at the same time, which we have to reinvent ourselves all the time. You know, safe is risky. And so I think when you think that you're going to be staying put, you're going backwards. 
at the end of the day, we have to constantly think about how we're going to change our firm, change the way we talk to clients. The companies are changing all the time. You know, all of this ha- has happened over the last 10 years in terms of technology, prowess, and market cap. But the next 10 years is going to be totally different. So we have to be very much learning as we're contributing and as we're providing advice. Seeing that we're moving across these platforms, direct, direct, direct to consumer, 10 years from now, will the consumer be the most empowered or completely overwhelmed and it will be possibly treacherous? Yeah, I think there's a risk of taxing the consumer, so to speak, too much, where we're putting too much weight on the choices of the consumer. Curation and you know, guides will have to come back again. Remember when we first started using YouTube, like you were in the jungle. You had no idea how to navigate YouTube. Now there's obviously different ways of doing it. So I think it'll kind of bring a little bit of power back to the curators and the experiences, not just the consumer appetite. You see all sorts of companies. I'd love for you to say, here's one I'm so excited about, but if not one specific company, give me a space that you are going, this is what I want to get involved with. Food. People don't think of food as uh, anything more than what we eat, but food is content. A lot of companies are evolving now on the technology side where they are using e-commerce to sell food. The whole delivery platform is changing completely. Restaurants are brands. And I think that ultimately will yield to other forms of content that we're not thinking about today. We think of content as a TV show or a studio or a piece of music or poetry, whatever it is. But food is content, other forms of content as well. I like the experience business. I think technology has gone too far to the forefront. And the best technology is when it recedes into the background for life, for experiences. And I think that's what really media is going to be about. Live events, experiential, other things. I want to talk about you also. Wait, like, wait before, you- we do, before we do, though, <laughs> there are themes that keep coming up when you're talking about what's going to be the same. You're saying yeah. relationships, yeah. experiences. Yeah. And in what your advisory business is. And all of this is based in trust. So every day in the news, we talk about the United States and the state of play and that we have never been so divided and we've never been so angry. But when you actually think about all the things that you've been telling me, and when you think about the companies that in the last 10 years or so have been the most standout successful, I think of companies like Airbnb or Uber. And those companies are specifically rooted in and based on trust and community. The opposite of what we normally say every day where the world is headed. If I would have said to you 10 years ago, so Aria, a guy's going to show up to your house in a Toyota Camry. I have no idea who he works for. He's going to pick you up. There might be a car seat in the back. There might have been some schmutz in the back seat, but he's going to give you a ride to your office. And if you take an Uber pool, there might be another person in there. You would tell me to take a hike. In the same vein that if I said, oh, you're going to Paris, go stay at this apartment of a stranger, you would also laugh. And now they're not just social media platforms that we like. They are entrenched in the way we live. Right, so why? Brand, trust, that is your business. You have an amazing brand. People trust you. You're authentic. There's a certain affinity about brands. It's an age-old tradition. There are brands on the Food Network. There are brands at the U.S. Open that you go to. There are brands everywhere, but the brand needs a certain level of engagement and affinity and trust. But what does it tell you about the way we think and the way we live? Because the brand of Hilton always existed, and a yellow taxi we've known for years. Yeah, so there's room for new brands today. And the brands are getting more fragmented. So you have a brand that you now can reach audiences away from just your show. 
you're on Twitter, you're on Facebook, you said, you're on Instagram with all your Halloween outfits and they're amazing, right? So like you are definitely reaching people directly. So what's changed? It's back to this fragmented media platform. You can reach the consumer in many different ways. You have a brand that's called a 360 brand, 360 degree brand. Very few people can do it, by the way, but everyone's going to try it. What's the result of that? Some brands you won't trust. And so there'll be some dilution of brands. People think that the social media platforms is the end of celebrity because you lose scarcity. You get a voice, but you lose the scarcity of the brand. So your voice, the bar goes higher for what you're going to say and how you're going to impact it if you're going to rise above the noise. Do brands matter more today in what their values are or what they stand for than they did a few years ago? I, I think Uber is a great example of a brand who we saw so much pushback from people across the country based on the conduct of their CEO. And when all that happened, I thought, do people out there know anything about the CEO of Campbell Soup or Bounty Paper Towel, you know, businesses that are involved in their lives every day? What happened in the last few years that what a brand stood for meant so much to the consumer? Well, I mean, I think it's just more easily accessible. Businesses can be started much faster, and therefore you're seeing more brands pop up, but also go away quickly. When you go to a movie, it's in the movie screen for two weeks, then it's gone. You still talk about the Omarosa book, for example. That's like history. That was only a few weeks ago. So, I mean, I, th- I, mean, I don't want to bring it back to the forefront either. But at the end of the day, things are moving much faster. So the bar is higher to have a brand resonate and stay put for a while. Plus, the audience right now is getting fragmented. I mean, even the news channels, right? And the news channels are standing for one side of the aisle or the other, not just cable news, but even online platforms, right? Do you read Axios or Politico or do you go to different areas? So the danger is you live in an echo chamber in your own fragmented audiences and you're not getting a more broad sense of news in that example, but you're also getting a lot of brands to choose from. So the consumer having the power also is a responsibility because then the way the consumer invests back into these companies and the brands they support have to really be standing for something authentic and have longevity to them. Otherwise, it's here today, gone tomorrow, and we're starting again. Then to take it back to you and your business, is it not about you having a long-term relationship? Because if you're just in the business of advising and advising on specific transactions, there's lots of transactions, there's lots of advisors. And if you're just showing up at deal time, there's nothing sticky. Totally. The thing that I'm most proud about for the firm is the fact that we exist and that we have a recognizable brand. Lion Tree in six short years is a recognizable brand. And hopefully people think about it in a trusting and authentic way. And that allows us to be evolving and elastic in the products we provide and the fact that we can live to fight another day and that we can provide advice on transactions. But that's the thing I'm most proud of, that Lion Tree stands for something and that we have the ability to be a player long-term, hopefully. I think we're ready for questions. I want to ask you a question first. You can ask me a question. <laughs> okay. What has happened to the political arena from a media perspective? Like you, do you feel when you sit in that chair now that you're not just reporting the script about what's happening in the news, but that people want to hear what you have to say, people want you to interpret it? Because talk about a chaotic moment right now. I mean, people are looking at you and saying, what the hell is going on? Like, do you feel that responsibility every single day? I do. I've been in the media business for seven years. Yeah. And when I was leaving banking to move into media and I was going to Bloomberg, I met with Andy Lack, who now runs NBC. And Andy said to me at the time, he said, in the new world of media, there's not going to be any more teleprompter readers because people can get their news from anywhere. He said, the people who are going to stick have to know the content, 
love the content and have people care about them. And I really, really believe that. And I think right now, there's so much talk that the media is completely liberal and there's a liberal bias. To an extent, that's true. But I think more, many people who are in the media deeply care about it. And I think one thing that happened, at least in the world of politics, you know, since the president was elected, irrelevant of how you feel about him, people are engaged in this country. And that's a hugely positive thing. And all that's happening is impacting. We keep saying, you know, what are people's political affiliations? I think at the end of the day, less people consider themselves a Republican or a Democrat. I think everyone wants to be socially free, physically safe, financially secure. So for me, if every day I start my business and say, what are the stories that matter most that are going to help people in these verticals? What can we do to help people be more prepared for their day? Then I think we're going to have success. And I think one of the things that leads to this, there's a huge liberal bias or there's only negative news. There is some. But I think that in terms of politics, we're in a situation where, and it's not just members of the administration, it's people on both sides, People are telling a lot of lies, just direct lies, unnecessary lies every single day. So when we're fact-checking them, it sure sounds like I'm biased against you if I am calling you a liar. But if I call you a liar when you're lying, that's an important thing to do. A risky thing with the new media that you were referencing is standards and practices. You can think whatever you want about NBC, but I can't wake up tomorrow and write a story and put it up on NBC's website. The amount of hurdles and barriers and legal and standards that I have to go through, though you might doubt it, is gargantuan. Yet a huge risk out there is someone could start a website called momswhoreallyloveamerica.com. That sounds like a website that my mom in Park Ridge, New Jersey would read. And momswholoveamerica.com could be run by complete propagandists in a basement somewhere And based on algorithms and AI and all that Facebook has figured out about my mom, they're going to start pumping stories to her from momswholoveamerica.com. And then when I go to dinner with my mom this Sunday night and she goes, oh my goodness, can you believe, can you believe how the post office is just taking advantage of us and Jeff Bezos, worst person ever. And I'm like, where did you read this? Momsloveamerica.com. And I'm going, what? But that's the risk that we run. So there's a story that people say when they read the uh, page six of the New York Post, they read something about themselves and they say, I can't believe they're writing this stuff. It's so not true. It's a lie. And I can't believe they're printing that. And the next paragraph you read about someone else, you go, that happened to that guy. But that's exactly (laughs) it. And that's where we're believing what we want to believe. And I'll say that my biggest disappointment in covering politics, the difference in covering business I think when you cover, especially business people in the second half of their career or when they get to the the lion tree phase, they're out of the maniacal climb for money and power. And I think it's when you're interviewing people, when you're speaking to people, when you're covering people who are really trying to do the best for their company, to leave the best legacy behind them, in part, and not to be crass, but because they've already got their tuition paid for. They've already got their rent covered. In politics... I think it's the opposite. In politics, again, not to be offensive, they don't have any money. All they have is power. So the thought of losing power, which is their only identity, without that power, they have absolutely nothing. And so for me, the most distressing thing, and I was so depressed 
around the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. And I wasn't, not even for one side or the other, I was just depressed and upset about the whole spectacle of it. But not to be an ageist, but the spectacle and part of how old the people who are running it were. We have people who are running the country, who are making decisions that are going to impact our children, who I wouldn't want to drive a car or use a sharp knife. <laughs> I mean, it's true, though. I mean, Gary's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I worry so much. A great part about technology, it's not new that bad, corrupt things are happening. Yeah. It's new that we see it all, right? Like Paola and hooking up this one's brother-in-law and cousin and friend always existed. We just didn't see it. Now, because of great journalism or all of these great platforms, we see it. The question is, what are we going to do about it in terms of important journalism? And what are we going to do about the rise in propaganda? Right. You said two things. One is the NBC system is very strong in fact-checking and credibility, et cetera. At the same time, you said you can get off the teleprompter and talk just like you just did now. Yes. Very few people can do that. You're trusted to do that. Why? I think because I'm my real self. Because I will say I'm sorry. Because I will say when I mess up. And I think at least for me, and I think it's an important thing for all of us to do, is stop clutching our pearls and judging one another so much. We are all flawed. We have all told lies. We have all made mistakes. Stephen Wright, by the way, the comedian, says, show me someone with a clear conscience. I'll show you someone with a bad memory. But, but that's exactly it. <laughs> And so the, the more that we can approach things truly, and I don't mean it in a corny way, with respect yep. and an open mind and an open heart, yeah. I think the greater chance we have of success. So you could tune into me on any random day and say, but Stephanie, you don't have enough conservative voices on TV. You've become so liberal. I actually am not so liberal. But a, a hard thing right now in news, and again, I mean this respectfully, you can separate policies with the president, you know, good policy and conduct. It's very hard to find good voices who want to speak about policy and defend the president's policies because the president tells whether they're nonsense lies or important lies every day. And so people who have great reputations don't want to put themselves out there and defend the president because unfortunately, if they want to say, you know what, Jared Kushner and the president just worked on NAFTA 2.0 and it was brilliant policy because from a marketing standpoint, the president tore up NAFTA, which he said he would do for his base. And then they created NAFTA 2.0, which is great for the globe. But not a lot of people want to come on TV and talk about that because then I have to go, yep, he did do that. But then a minute ago, he tweeted that Elizabeth Warren was an ugly Pocahontas and he called Stormy Daniels horse puss. <laughs> well, all true. <laughs> and so, unfortunately, it's pushed things to the extreme. And if I had a takeaway that I think is so important... Is that actually on your cue card? No. <laughs> but a really important thing right now is for us to regain decency and civility and respect. And kindness. Because if we don't have those things, then we have nothing. Listen, you're a banker, okay? Like, you're pretty brutal. That's the industry <laughs> that you chose, right? You don't get paid loads and loads of money because, you know, you're giving out goodies to every, you know, little child that walks in. Like, these are brutal businesses. But that doesn't mean you have to lose a sense of kindness and decency. Something that I fear the most in midterms is not who's going to win or lose, but that the center is disappearing. Right. 
the center is where we all succeed in business, right? You have very few deals that you do that one side walks away completely victorious and is shoving the other side's face in the mud. And unfortunately, that's where we are in politics. And my hope is that through sort of civility, the center where people are saying, I'm not worried about where my dinner is coming from and I have tuition paid for, we can say, we need to bring this back. Amen. Love it. All right. They're giving us the showtime with the Apollo hook. So thank you, my dear friend. Thanks, I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We'd like to again give a special thanks to the 92nd Street Y and their entire team. And of course, REA's friend, Mr. Ron Agam. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.